The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hairi mai ki the Fold, e mehine ko Duncan Grieve tokungwa. Uh, my guest today is Finlay MacDonald, who is here in his capacity as the editor of The Conversation New Zealand. The Conversation is it's a not-for-profit website that, well, media company, not even a company. I mean, I'm doing a real botched job of this, and Finley does a good one at the start. But basically it works with universities to take the work of academics and create accessible stories that, that can then be distributed through essentially any media platform provided certain rules are followed. It's the product of the mind of Andrew Jaspin, who was actually forced out of it in quite an episode in, in 2017. But he's a sort of serial entrepreneur and innovator within journalism. And I think the idea of the the conversation was actually a, a very good and, and trailblazing one. That's why that what, what has driven its success Finley has had the fortune or misfortune, delete according to taste, of being editor through essentially the whole COVID period, during which time there's been a tremendous desire for great science-based communication and also an increasingly loud resistance to the idea of, of science in some quarters, and we touch on that. But Finley is so much more than that. He was someone that I grew up reading and admired very much, in some ways probably hoped to emulate. He was a a feature writer at Metro uh, and also went on to to edit The Listener, has had a long story career in television, which we don't touch on. But basically he was involved in journalism and print magazine feature writing, all of that good naughty stuff that, that we try and do on the spin-off through, a, through the sort of golden age of, of print, you know, when it still had the same cultural power, it still had wide distribution uh, and there were just advertising revenues that could support the retention of really great journalists, the kind that now often end up going to work uh, in various communications roles, and we miss them dearly. So we, we get into all that stuff, and uh, yeah, I think it's a good one. Uh, this is Finley McDonald from The Conversation on The Fold. Kia ora, Finlay, and welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, thank you for having me. No, thanks Thanks so much for coming along. I feel like there's a, there's a lot to talk about, both in terms of the conversation, but I'm also, you know, you've edited and written for some of my favourite magazines uh, during that, that absolute unquestioned prime, so keen to get into that. But I was... Um I was recently referred to as a veteran journalist, so I have crossed that line now. <laughs> I, I would sort of hope that I could kind of creep up to, to veteran. I think it's aspirational, you know. Aspirational veteran journalist. <laughs> <laughs> so, but before we do that, t- tell me 
about the conversation because it's actually a really kind of radical and quite an original idea in terms of how it approaches or interacts with journalism. It's 10 years old now, uh, if you count from when it was first established in Australia, in Melbourne, Australia. One or two guys' bright idea, really. They realised that universities were reservoirs of knowledge and expertise. Newsrooms were shrinking due to that thing called the internet and what it had done to their advertising revenues and resources. And the basic concept was put journalists together with academics so that you can mine the expertise in the universities but actually make the information digestible and accessible to a general readership. And they launched it fairly small scale um, and it grew fast and I think the timing was right. Um, So it started off in Australia. It's now spread quite a long way around the world, the US, the UK, New Zealand, obviously, um, France, Canada, Indonesia, Spain. Um, So you might say it's a very successful startup. Yeah, it does appear that way. And I I liked what uh, Andrew Jasmine, who's the sort of a guy who's had a lot of ideas um, in his life, and we'll talk about him in, in a bit. But he described universities as giant newsrooms, and I think that is both true in the sense that they are just constantly hauling fantastic stories and ideas and perspectives uh, out of the, the ocean, <laughs> and yet they have historically been, and please don't take this the wrong way, academics who are listening, but often quite bad at turning that into something that a a regular person on on the the street might digest. And that feels like the most, um, you know, the the, the sort of original idea of of the conversation was to be able to bridge that gap and to say that journalists and editors, really high-quality ones, are, are best placed to kind of take it that last mile and make it accessible. Yeah, I mean, you know as well as I do that there are some academics who are very media-friendly, they write all the time, they're columnists and so on, some write just like journalists. Um, but many um, struggle to write and convey information in the way that you and I would want to publish or consume it even. Um, I mean... Without being Journalism 101 about it, the old inverted pyramid that we're all taught at journalism school, which, you know, put all your important information up the top and diminishing importance towards the bottom, is kind of the opposite of the way academics write for journals. Because as we know as journalists, when we get a serious academic paper, we cut straight to the bottom and go to the summary, you know, (laughs) which is where all the important information is. So it's kind of a reversal for them. Um, Some take to it very easily. Others uh, need help. Um, But generally speaking, they're very amenable to being edited um, for journalism. So and they find it kind of interesting and fascinating and maybe mysterious, but quite rewarding. Oh, that's that's good to hear because I, I was going to ask. Like, you know, so not everyone does take take well to the editing process, and you know we've quite frequently gotten into yeah. wars with with various people who, you know, I think edit things an act of love. But uh, you know, <laughs> me too. But it it does involve a degree of diplomacy, especially if you get a piece of raw copy, a first draft that needs you know even more than just radical restructuring. It essentially needs rewriting re-engineering, panel beating, all of those things. But for so, the most part, they, they take to that? Um, well, I'm not saying that's the majority that you get, but but when it does happen, you, you just have to launch in and say, look, this would never work. 
if it was picked up by a republisher and, you know, like the spin-off or stuff, um, it just would never be run. So are you okay if I completely rework your information but don't destroy any of the truth in it in the process? And that's, the, that's the crucial part. The yeah. thing that's interesting to me is because you, you talk about it as a startup, uh, and it is on some level, you know, it, 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 it has grown and evolved and you know, it has many of the attributes of a startup, and yet it's a not-for-profit, and the the sort of financial model of it is, is interesting to me. So how how is it funded? Because it has really high quality editors and journalists like yourself, uh, and you're not cheap, you know. We're uh, quite cheap. <laughs> well, yeah, well, getting cheaper all the time in, yeah. in, in this economy um, for, for journalism. But fundamentally, like the the, the product has a has a, a level of quality and care that is not something that you can yeah. just sort of smash out. So it is subscription-based, basically, that that's the key to it. So the universities pay an annual subscription fee to the conversation to be members and therefore their academics are eligible to be authors. They also do, or we do, uh, an annual fundraising drive which tops that up, generally targeting people who care about serious media and would support Radio New Zealand or the ABC in Australia, that sort of thing. But essentially it's a university funding model. Um, we maintain editorial independence and everyone, each party seems to understand the nature of that arrangement. So it's not a master-servant one because both parties get something really valuable out of it. Um, and the universities don't pay a, a, a huge fee. It's just that there are a lot of universities. So when you, when you add it up cumulatively, we've got all of the New Zealand universities as members nearly all, if not all, in Australia and elsewhere, you can afford on that basis to run a fairly good, highly qualified, experienced newsroom, which is what we do. Do, do you find that the, the university sort of understand the proposition? Because, you know, that there, there can be a sense that that last mile of communicating to a broader public it very there, like you say, there are some academics who are who are brilliant at it, and we, we commission them regularly. That sometimes you can get a sense that you know from parts of academia that that's almost like whether it's someone else's job or it's even the public isn't really capable of understanding these, these heady concepts, which I would tend to argue that yeah. that might be true in some kind of narrow instances. But I think a lot of the time, both parties benefit from yeah. from these ideas being more widely shared. I think the universities really do understand the value of amplifying the voices of their of their academic staff. Um, the authors themselves, the academic authors, I always say to them, "Look, you should only do this if you want to." You know, personally, I think it is part and parcel of your role as a public intellectual. If you see yourself as a public intellectual, um, this is a nice part of the work that you would do, um, but it's not for everyone. Um, oddly enough, you, you find um, you can find potential authors and, and, and experts from areas such as engineering or bioscience and so on, which are very proprietorial and they're doing research which could be monetized and so on. They're less keen to share some of their secrets and for quite understandable reasons. But they're fine about explaining the intricacies of, of the science that they're an expert in. Often the science writers are actually the best 
at explaining to a lay audience what they because I think they're they're just used to lecturing stage one students and making complex information digestible at the you know at the outset. So long answer to your question. Everyone seems to get the uh, the kopapa, yeah. And as far as the the. Because it feels like science has had. I mean, you've been with the conversation for three years. Is that two right? and a half? I think yeah. two and a half, and they've they've been a completely relaxing couple, two and a half years with no particular major news events that I can think of. No. Uh, during that time, obviously, science has become weirdly political at very various times, and the role of science communication has become a far more public one. What, how has that sort of impacted your your organisation and are there some sort of stories which kind of roll out of that that naturally speak to whether it's the, the power of the conversation or, or, or that, that have had a particular kind of uh, impact? Yeah. Um, digress for a second. I actually took this job in the first lockdown in 2020. I wasn't, I wasn't even looking for employment, but I heard about this gig and next thing you know I was changing my job which was all kind of surprising so I you know it goes part and parcel for me with with COVID you know this whole job and so I dived in during that first lockdown um, and as you've probably found and I think you know a lot of publishers of evidence-based expert commentary and analysis have found it was a huge boost to our numbers the 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 the, the metric the reads on on our COVID content was um, really spiked highly, particularly in that first year. And we had um, the likes of Michael Baker, who went on to become, you know, epidemiological superstars in their own right, writing for us. It was widely consumed and it was widely picked up and republished. So that was the upside, you know, and that was fascinating. I probably wouldn't have known as much about COVID um, had I not been editing expert analysis of what was an unfolding pandemic and quite mysterious to begin with, you know, and not just the science side of it, you know, the economic impacts and so on. So that was all fascinating, was very rewarding to work on. Like you say, as the the reaction against science and government control and strictures started to bite, we, like most news organisations, noticed the same um, the same pushback. Um, we had, I mean, the most obvious response to it is that we've revised our our comments policy in in the last month or so. Uh, we used to default to comments being open on every article, but we don't. We manually open them on s- chosen articles now because it was just becoming um, way too hard to moderate, and that wasn't just. COVID and science, that was anything related to gender, to, you know, Jacinda Ardern, to all of the all of the subjects that you know are so triggering to a small minority. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, right? So, so you referred to, uh, before we started uh, recording, you know, that you know, various parties like Sean Plunkett or, or Andrew Bolton Australia had, had sort of come to attack you for sort of advancing some kind of a woke agenda. Do you do you think there is anything in that? Because that is a that is often a critique of lately journalism and historically academia. Yep. While at the same time, both science and uh, you know a, a platform like the conversation would at least aspire to to a level of of apolitics. Yeah, we we I mean we do aspire to 
fairness and balance and aim to be evidence-based. But that doesn't mean you can't be opinionated or take a position on a particular issue. What was that old saying, you know, facts or the truth has a liberal bias? It's well known. So it's obviously going to upset (laughs) people uh, at some level. Um, I think, you know, critics of conversation articles or spin-off articles or, or so on, yes, they may broadly tar us as woke and and so on, they often attack um, individual writers themselves um, for daring to have um, a viewpoint that that differs from their own. Um, And, you know, that's led to some fairly unpleasant um, exchanges, I know, in the past and in Australia in particular. And that's one of the things I think um, university authors need to be aware of is that when you jump into the media world, you are exposing yourself, um, as we all know, and you have to be ready for that. Um, So we just chalk it up to, you know, the robust everyday exchange of ideas. What more can you do? Totally. Do do you, are there sort of mechanisms that you can have in place to sort of, I mean, obviously you've talked about turning off comments on on stories or at least having them be, be sort of default off. You know, are there? I know, you know, from experience, there are certain academics within New Zealand who've both, but, but you know, have have not felt necessarily particularly supported by the universities, or have felt like they become the brunt of, um, you know, what feel feel almost like decentralised campaigns, uh, social media source campaigns that to to attack them. Do you have? Have you sort of experienced that with some of your? Writers or editors, or what, how do you sort of respond when that kind of thing yeah. really whips up? Is well, I know what you, I know. I know the kind of thing you're talking about, and I guess in the first instance, it, it really is the university's responsibility to look after and protect their own staff. Um, we can offer advice, we can support, you know, we can um, help authors with follow-up media requests and things like that, but we haven't really had any examples, well I certainly haven't, any examples of of my authors being let down by their institutions and in fact we do work quite closely with the media teams um, who are, you know, plugged into the politics of the university anyway so it hasn't, it hasn't been as big a problem as you might have imagined so yeah, oh, that's good, good which, I'm, which I'm glad about because it, actually the whole model relies on the goodwill of these of these experts you know, taking the time to to do what they do. Absolutely. I mean, another another part of the model that I think, again, it's one of those things where you look at it now and you go, oh, obviously that's how you do it. But again, but but you know, ten or eleven years ago, when the conversation was founded, the idea of publishing under a Creative Commons license was not a typical one for publishers who tend to, as a rule, yeah. jealously guard, guard their information and and want people to form an orderly line at their front door rather than going and finding it wherever it, it might end up. How important do you think that Creative Commons licensing has has been to, to its success? Hugely. Um, you know, it's, it's integral to the success of the conversation. Over the years, the conversation's own website has grown in terms of traffic to the point where um, many of the more popular articles will get bigger reads on our own site than than elsewhere. But the the Creative Commons license allows us to give that 
content. I don't like that word content, but we all use it, right? It's very hard to think of a <laughs> yeah, better one. I know, it's, it's, without it's using anything. more than one word. Yeah. Um, to republishers, essentially for free. They, they just they have to abide by a few terms and conditions, and, and that's it. So what that means is that uh, a given article can just be amplified many times over, and it can also travel around the world. Yes, on our platform, but also be picked up by major republishers in other countries. And that happens quite a lot. And for the universities and for the authors themselves, that's, you know, that's a huge, um, it's a huge bonus, really, because you get to disseminate your ideas and to, to a much broader readership than you, than you would normally. And, uh, you know, it's, I think I said earlier, you know, the, the flip side of it is you've got to look at it from the point of the newsrooms themselves, which have shrunk, um, which are under-resourced. And so they're hungry for quality content that has been through a professional editing process and that they can trust. Um, so it's been a win-win in that sense. And we have great relationships with our major republishers um, just precisely for those reasons. Yeah. Is there a story... I'm not trying to sound too PR-y, I promise. It well, just keeps coming out that way. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's on some, some level, it's the duty of the editor to, to, yeah. promote, to promote their publication. It would be quite weird if you I know, if were I, working there and thought, actually, this is kind of a crock of shit, but hey, it's a check. If you got me on a bad day, you never know what I might have said. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Is there a story or a piece that you publish that stands out for... Whether it's the the sort of scale of the impact, or, mm. or you know, that that sort of felt like it exemplified what the the conversation can be on a good day. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's numerous examples, but I think there's probably a couple I could pick out. One was from just before I started, so, and it was at the beginning of when it was the height of the lock, first lockdown, and a Massey University author wrote a piece about Jacinda Ardern's crisis management. She was a kind of leadership expert and so on. Um, at the time, there was a lot of fascination with New Zealand's response. That flew around the world, had over a million reads by the time, you know. Well, there's a million reads on, on conversation platform. And elsewhere. Right. Yeah. So, so when, you, when you talk about reads, you're, yeah. you're talking about the distributed yes. readership. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Although with that, in that case, I think a lot of them were on the conversation's own, own site. Um, a more recent example, and well... It, and in fact, there was such fascination with Jacinda Ardern during the height of the pandemic that we noticed clearly that if you put her name in a headline, it did better. So the temptation became to sort of link her well, that's to, interesting, to right? anything, right? So Jacinda well, had, Ardern had nothing to do with this story, but... <laughs> but it's in the so, so you're not uh, immune or above the, uh, the the kind of natural instincts. Of, it'll be quite nice no, if, to get people to. Not read at this. all. We do have we have robust debates about where the clickbait line exists. You know, and we don't we don't write cynical clickbait, but we definitely are very focused on SEO, um, search engine optimization. Uh, so we write we write quite literal headlines. You know, so if you can get Jacinda Ardern into the headline, hey, why wouldn't you? Um, because it ha had high recognition factor. Uh, more recently, when the a good example of, of, a, of a, an almost ideal conversation story was when the uh, Tongan volcano erupted. And it's, it's an island off the, the main island. Uh, and there happens to be one of the only world experts 
in that particular volcano is an Auckland University uh, volcanologist called Shane Cronin. And he wrote a piece pretty much within hours of the explosion, just explaining why it was so big, why you could see it from space, the history of that volcano. Very nice piece of science communication. That that had a million reads within 24 hours. That's great fun doing that, you know. Also, the first draft was beautifully written. I have to say that helped. <laughs> no, that, that, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. What I'd like to do now is, is sort of pivot towards because you know, well, I've known you for for some time, and you know you have had this career, as I said, at these um, Metro and the Listener in particular, which are, you know, my status as a veteran. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but you know, two, two of the, sure. the the magazines which have been most known for producing brilliant and original current affairs and culture writing, um, basically ever in this country. I, I wonder how you sort of. You know, contrast the, the sort of feeling of steering this ship versus something like the listener and, mm. you know, how they speak to the different eras that they were created in. Yeah, they're very different eras. Um, there's definitely skills and experience that I, I got as a, as a magazine editor and just as a magazine journalist that are applicable. I think my hands-on editing is, is very much a product of, of having had to push you know, weekly articles out constantly and make sure that they were well-crafted and well-headlined and so on. So there's that, just that that crafty bit to it. But I do feel like I've inhabited two different eras. You know, uh, you know having crossed the digital divide, I, I, I'm not really... I don't think I'd ever want to go back if ever there was even, even a reason to, you know. And I didn't realise it at the time, but, you know, when, when I was editor of The Listener in the late 90s, early 2000s, and even before that, when I'd been a feature writer and so on, it was a kind of golden age. Um, and the sh- I wasn't at Metro very long, but the time I was there as well, it was. You, you never know you're living through a golden age, really, do you? You know, we probably are now. I don't know, <laughs> but but in hindsight, you know, we still had robust advertising revenues. We had amazing 
senior journalists who could turn their hand to anything. We had, while the you know circulations were declining historically, they were still strong enough to, well, they were big enough for people now to look back and go, wow, that's how many you sold? Mm, those were the days. I mean, and all that ultimately added up to a level of kind of cult, sociocultural power that that is the thing that I feel like it isn't coming back in the same yeah. way and that if you were to publish an impactful story in Metro or The Listener, it felt like everyone or everyone who you wanted yeah. to read it was was naturally going to read it because there were just so few channels that, that kind of discussed issues of that nature and and the, the distribution of them was just so sort of naturally went in and met them that you know that that's the thing that feels like it's mm. on some level dissipated as people you know choose their own adventure through media nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's such a double-edged sword. You know, we've got more choice. The media is more interactive. It's more responsive to the people that consume it. More people can produce it themselves. But the flip side of that is that we don't all gather around the same village wells that we once used to. Um, you know, we don't even watch the same television programs, you know, in some ways. And so, you know, the, the the real golden age of something like The Listener was even earlier than my editorship, you know, when there were only two television channels in New Zealand. Um, everyone who wanted to know the television listings in advance subscribed to The Listener. Well, because they, they, they had a monopoly on even publishing those listings. They did, Is that correct? yeah, to, a monopoly on the advance listings. Um, and Muldoon took took that away in, a, in an act of spite at one stage. But, you know, I think it, it's circulation, and remember New Zealand's population was considerably lower than it is now, but it was its circulation peaked at around 400,000 copies per week. Um, people used to come and study it from overseas, this sort of, what is, why has New Zealand got this this magazine miracle? And then you said to them, well, it's sort of, it's owned by the public service and it's got a monopoly on television listings. And they go, oh, that's, <laughs> that's the quite answer. That's quite an advantage. <laughs> you know? But you can imagine, yeah, that does have cultural power. And the great thing about some of the those editors like Ian Cross and Tony Reid around that time when it was peaking were that they didn't just coast along on Coronation Street being popular and, and being a television listings magazine, they leveraged that circulation into it being a journalistic powerhouse. And in the process, some might disagree, They, but I think it's true, they more or less invented feature writing in New Zealand, which had never really been a big thing in the newspapers. And, um, you know, hats off to them, they did a great job. What, what are your sort of are there sort of stories or editors that you worked under that that feel like they because you know like you said it does feel like a golden age yeah. uh, you know look, looking back and that four hundred thousand number is absolutely mind melting when you think of you know, that's more than ten percent of the population it, it considerably more yes um, but but yeah what what were the, some of this whether it was stories you worked on or, or editors you worked under that really kind of sort of gleam out as emblematic of of that era. I always feel like I'm put on the spot when <laughs> I did so many great stories when I was working. Not great stories because I wrote them, but that great assignments when I was at the listener. And 
Age is a funny thing, isn't it? Because I just saw they celebrated the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Guadalcanal, and I went there with the New Zealand Defence Force for the 50th anniversary <laughs> when I was a baby feature writer. And I thought, how the hell have I taken 30 years to get from there to here? But I have. When I first started as a junior feature writer at The Listener, I had an amazing mentor called Helen Pask, and some people will remember her from... David Beetson was the editor, and he was a sort of current affairs television journalist as well. They were from the previous generation themselves, uh, and they just, it was a great table to learn at, um, my craft. So I, I sort of remember those kinds of people. I was always great friends with Tony Reid. I worked with him. He came back to the listener as a feature writer later on. He'd been a great editor as well, like during the Springbok tour era and things like that. So I was, I felt mentored by those kinds of people. My own time, um, I was the editor um, when 9-11 happened, and I remember that feeling like a kind of watershed um, as an editor, a magazine editor, because how do you respond to something that earth-shattering and world-changing from little old New Zealand? How do you make it relevant? It clearly is relevant, but you can't just sort of attach the word New Zealand to, to every story or analysis. So that was a fascinating experience going through that, and I sort of feel like I... There's a before me and an after version around nine eleven. That yeah, that, that's how I I look back on it. Really, yeah. Oh, so Turn it, of the century. It's 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 almost feels like it's faded from the consciousness now. But mm. it felt like the only story for for quite some years there. It was kind of funny because we we used to put the magazine to bed, as they say, on a Wednesday. That was when it went off to the printer. We had to have all our final deadlines. And 9-11 actually happened on a Wednesday morning. The only reason I remember that is that I was glued to the television watching this horror unfold. And like at about, honestly, 8.30 a.m., remembered that I was a magazine editor (laughs) (laughs) and should do something about this. And we, we went into the office and they said, well, we can do something badly because we just don't have time, or we can just write this whole issue off, really. It had some sort of concept cover about gated communities or something. I said, let's just forget it, that this 9-11, this is just another victim of 9-11. But for the next one, we'll really go hell for leather. And we did. And I, you know, I commissioned journalistic heroes of mine in America, like Alexander Coburn, um, and, you know, we found correspondence in Manhattan and we put together a really great issue that, you know, I'm still proud of. I think it still stands out. It's interesting to me because hearing you talk about it, I, I, you know, I was editing a music magazine right. for a few years later, you know, a much less popular one. But the I miss those days and the that sense of moment of the deadline and then the, that amazing feeling of when it's gone to press but hasn't yeah. yet come back. And I miss them kind of almost unequivocally, even though obviously I love this era too. But you said before that you, you don't miss the, those days. No. What, what, what is it about? Well, it, it's not that I don't miss them. Um, there was a kind of more of a sense of jeopardy with, with print. You know, like you, once you'd committed it and it was being printed, you couldn't quickly jump online and change that defamatory <laughs> sentence. Yeah, you know, no, no, no one noticed. <laughs> you were stuck with it. So there was that real, uh, I don't know, it was a, a sense of urgency that, that comes with producing a physical product, you know. Um, what I meant, though, was that having crossed the digital divide into working purely in an online 
format. I just feel like that's the way the world's gone, and I I don't ever see it coming back. I still like physical magazines. I like books. I'm not an entirely digitized person, but in terms of my day job and producing journalism or analysis or whatever it is you want to call it, I still f- I feel like this is much more effective than anything I could do um, by reverting to the old you know inky finger world. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, hey, thanks so much, uh, Finlay. It's been so great to have you up here. Pleasure. And uh, yeah, I. I I sometimes get complicated feelings about the conversation because, like, because it is, it's so well made. And you're right, it provides this important service to, to the balance of uh, us in journalism. Like, well, how, how do we create a similar model? But, well, I think yeah, that's I mean, on us for, for us yeah, to figure out. But briefly, I would say that it's, there's, there's many things that the conversation can't do, you know, and are just not part of its remit. So, you know, and that's probably the area that if, if you ask me whether I was frustrated or not, I used to love publishing satire, you know, and that that kind of fringe journalism, um, which we don't do, you know, so you can do that. <laughs> All right, we'll try and keep doing that. Thanks so much, Finley. Thank you. The Fold was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network. It was hosted by Duncan Grieve, produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, Kia he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.